Welcome to our podcast, where I, Keely Severson, Eric Johnson, and Alicia Swamy are exposing mold. Today, we are here with Doris from Green Gorillas, and Green Gorillas is a program that helps teach sustainable off-grid living. This podcast is brought to you by Michael Rubino, the Mold Medic, and All-American Restoration. The first and only mold remediation company in the country specializing in remediating mold for people with underlying health conditions or mold sensitivities. They've quickly become the most recommended remediation company from doctors and mold inspectors nationwide. Check out our show notes to pick up your copy of Michael Rubino's book, The Mold Medic, an expert guide on mold remediation, or visit allamericanrestoration.com to get your home assessed and get your health back on track today. This podcast is brought to you by My Myco Lab. Are you sick and tired of being sick and tired all the time? Have you gone from doctor to doctor, had lots of tests, tried many medications, vitamins, supplements, and still feel awful? You and many others like you could be suffering from exposure to molds and mycotoxins where you live or where you work. My MycoLab specializes in the most precise form of mycotoxin testing by analyzing a patient's IgG and IgE antibodies in the blood serum sample, producing accurate results you can trust. Visit MyMycoLab.com to order your test today. Welcome, Doris. Thank you so much for joining us. And would you share a little bit about how you got into the area of wanting to educate people about off-grid living? Well, basically about seven years ago, we went on a um, sabbatical to, um, I was living in Amsterdam at the time with my partner, and we went on a year's sabbatical to Ibiza and uh, lived at a, a ecological center there called Cito Verde. I mean, I've always been interested in, in alternative technologies and uh, bioconstruction and and things like this but there we really lived them and kind of learned about them but I also found that um, that it was actually very difficult to learn these to get hands-on experience with a lot of these quite basic things really like uh, heating hot water with so- uh, sun or solar panels or gray water recycling or anything like that it's actually even at the echo center it's quite difficult to get some actual real-time experience and trying things and to get together all the information we ended up never going home from our sabbatical and <laughs> and uh, only to sell the house and kind of close our businesses and things so uh, eventually things just started to sort of flow in a way that i'd learned so many things and i felt like these were it took me so much time to gather all this information and get some experience with these things i i felt like making it more accessible to other people to really like sort of jump in for a week or two weeks and get all this information that took me two years together and to play with in a very compact sort of a, a form and as time went down, other people came along there and joined in in, in this kind of ambition. And we, we ran some trial courses and stuff and got some really good feedback from people that were coming to the center anyway. And, um, and uh, eventually just sort of split off and started doing our own, our own thing. So if I wanted to come to where you are, is it a set amount of time where you offer two-week workshops? Is it you know, people can come and learn as long as they like. Walk me through a bit of, of the structure of the program and, and what people learn in the program. 
Right, so basically we give two types of workshops. The first is a tiny house build, which is literally we start off with 200 euro pallets and construct a tiny house of about 15 square meters in two weeks time from scratch. And this is aimed at, at anybody. So also at people that have never touched tools before, have no DIY experience or anything, just to really kind of open up people to, that, to their own capabilities, really, being able to construct their own environment with their own hands. And that's an immensely empowering uh, experience. The reason that we really do it for a set weeks with a set group, especially the tiny house builds, is because it's just a great energy to meet strangers and, and go through this process together and really like sort of find this power within you together and, and end up with a, with a home basically at the end of it and go like, wow, <laughs> you know, we can do this. So that, that, that's always a really cool, um, a really cool time. It sounds like a rewarding community experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a, lot, there's a lot in there. It's not just about tiny houses. It's about the whole kind of array of bioconstruction. So all the different aspects of the footprint of a house from the materials to the energy that needs the heat and cool itself to the environment that it's in and how it relates to that and everything, the waste that it creates or deals with just the, the entire footprint of the house. People get this community experience. We eat together, often people camp at the site and stuff. So we really get this cool vibe going on for two weeks. And, um, and we're still in contact with a lot of the people that have built these things with us over the years. So it's, um, there's an ongoing community as well of future projects and, and uh, what people are up to, where they go from here and stuff. So that's really cool as well. For somebody who wanted to participate in the workshops that you offer, what would the cost look like? And where is the location that they would travel to to learn this? Right. So at the moment we do tiny house builds and then we have another, we have another two week workshop that we do always after the tiny house build. So we have a week's break after the tiny house build. Then we have another two week workshop, which you could do both of them or either or. And the second workshop is a two week sustainable living workshop, which covers all the elements of living in, in an ecological way, basically. And every day has a theme. So I can never remember all of them, but just to give you an idea, it's like permaculture, rainwater gathering will be one day, echo toilets will be one day, composting will be one day, growing your own food is a day, solar, electricity, and so on and so on. So we really get into like some of the theory behind it, but especially the practical making of these systems and, and how to work them. So people really get a chance to sort of pull a, a solar rig apart and see how all the parts work and you know, measure some of the currents and stuff and get an idea of how, how to put them together, what kind of capacity you can generate with how many panels and all this kind of thing. And we do that with each topic. What we aim to do is to do one in the spring, so in April, on Mallorca, a set of tiny house build and the sustainable living. And then after in the summer, when it's a little bit too hot on Mallorca to think and move, we go down to France, where I am now, and do the same series again. We have a swimming pool here as well that makes it a bit nicer, <laughs> just to cool off. And then uh, in the fall, we do another one in, on Mallorca. There's opportunities all year long, really, except for the winter. The costs of the course at the moment are 
550 euros for the two weeks. So it's very reasonable because we really want to try and make this accessible to everyone. And a lot of the people that are trying to get into this field are either young or, well, there's a lot of young people, especially coming into this. But um, yeah, we just don't want to limit it to make it exclusive or anything like that. I'm just curious, when you guys build your tiny homes or just in general in your locations that you're in, do you find a lot of mold issues within the homes there? Within the homes that we build or within other? Yeah, I would, I would say both. Like, so I want, I, I want to see a comparison. Like, are you seeing people complaining of issues in their home, like in a more suburban area? And then when they come to learn your off-grid living or they transition over to that off-grid living, do they still have those mold sensitivities or do they feel like they've gotten over that or they feel like their health has improved? Let me think back a little bit. I actually come from, from a, 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 I'm a carpenter by trade and I had a building construction company in, uh, in Amsterdam for many years or different companies, but worked in uh, build, building and um, uh, contracting. So I have a lot of experience with all sorts of um, building dramas and floods and damage and all this kind of thing. Just trying to think back of some specific mold situations. I think actually the, the most prevalent that I've got experience with is in kind of wet rooms and when I was working in New Zealand because I grew up in New Zealand before moving to Amsterdam and they have a, a probably similar instructions or more similar to the American kind of construction style with the timber frame housing and um, chipboard drywalling and stuff. So. And there was a lot of problems, especially when there's leaks in the plumbing or in the roofing and stuff. And the, those houses are just very susceptible to the stuff growing in the walls, really, where you don't see it until you break it down. Probably more so than in, in Amsterdam, strangely enough, which is a much wetter climate and colder as well. But because they build with uh, bricks and mortar much more than with timber, it seems less susceptible to it, I think. You know, if there's mold there, you can see it because it kind of grows on the, on the face of the wall rather than there being kind of hidden cavities where it can kind of fester behind layers and doesn't really come out until you open it up. Yeah, exactly. We had a, an Adobe builder tell us, uh, he calls it stick homes. <laughs> and he stick said that they're, they're just, he doesn't understand why that's how we're building our buildings because, I mean, look at what we're going through in climate change and who knows how that's going to elevate or increase. The integrity of these homes are just so fragile and it's so expensive to have to always keep maintaining and being on top of everything because of the fragility of the construction. So it's interesting that you told us the more brick and mortar don't seem to have a major issue. It's more the stick this, home. This is just in my experience, yeah. But um, I was working in Amsterdam, which is a very, you know, an array of, very old uh, kind of uh, renovated homes and a lot of kind of crooked and small spaces and so if you're going to have a problem I think it would it would be there. Back in the 1970s I remember getting slammed on Singlestrasse. On Singlestrasse, all right. On the, on yeah the I, I wound up in a hotel there that was uh, had a, a mold problem. All right, okay. But I, I would get out, you know, go for a walk, feel better as soon as I got out of the place. 
especially with the hotels, because they try and maximize the, the, um, the use of the meters, uh, which, are, which are very small, you know, they have very small square meters uh, homes there. So um, uh, you don't have the ventilation when you have the, the small bathroom on the, on the bedroom and stuff, then no air to play with, really. So you definitely notice it, yeah. For people who want to take your workshops, do you tend to attract a lot of environmentally injured people or is it, or is it a different population that tends to just want to learn sustainable living for the sake of being sustainable? I think generally it's, it's uh, sustainability for the sake of sustainability. I think a lot of people are actually looking for more meaning in their lives. You know, like there's a lot of people that are stuck in career paths that they don't really like the, the, the projected end of and uh, just want to make a switch to something that, that, um, that feels better with them. So I think that's, um, to be honest, we haven't been going that long and, we, and our workshops aren't booking out or anything yet. So uh, we don't have a, a huge amount of people yet. And there, there may be people who would be interested interested in our courses that are not uh, hearing about them yet you know so we're also searching for who this might be interesting for you know would there ever be an opportunity where you guys would come to the united states for a moment in time and do like a workshop over here uh well actually we had we had a, a an unexpected amount of success on tiktok lately as you mentioned um before we started and uh actually we got a few offers from from the states as well from hawaii and stuff so we're not in a position to do anything with that at the moment yet because we're still building up our, our presence here. But um, yeah, we're open to anything. I mean, we're really trying not to get people to travel to our workshops from too far away. So we're really aiming at the local populations. And, um, but we're finding we also can do a lot via YouTube videos and everything. So we're really trying to focus on how we can have the most impact without getting people to fly all over the planet because it doesn't make sense to incur those kind of ecological footprints, you know, to, to live more sustainably. <laughs> Are you guys doing like, so in order to reduce where people have to feel like they need to go fly across the world to attend your workshops are you guys going to be offering like digital workshops in the future that's something we, we've talked about but we're kind of struggling to see how that would work really or how that would how we could benefit people sufficiently to make that worthwhile for both parties you know the thing that i can see happening maybe down the line is more of a consultancy like an online consultancy kind of thing where people use our youtube videos to do what they can and then if they get stuck or they have a unique situation that they, that they want to talk about, then, then we can help them, well, in a, in a conversation like this, you know? Now, I really want to dive into what is it that you guys are doing? And, you know, we did talk with some other people and they kind of walked us through like composting toilets and, you know, solar. And I did check out your website and I was really interested in how you guys collect filter and distribute like rainwater. Would love to hear more about that. Well, yeah, that's a big thing, especially where we are on Mallorca is a very dry climate, getting more so. There's also a problem with the groundwater, with it being an island and surrounded by sea and a lot of hotels and tourism there that are um, kind of sucking the, the reservoirs dry. So um, the salt water coming in from the sea into the, into the aquifers and stuff. So 
So water is a big issue there. Although there's a reasonable rainfall, it kind of comes in two or three days per year. So you have to be ready to catch the stuff and store it well and keep it well for, for, uh, for a decent amount of time. So, uh, and anyway, with climate chaos as it goes on, it, it pays to be ready for a downpour and, and also ready for a drought, you know, because that's what's going to happen. You're just going to get more and more extremes. That's definitely something that we spend a lot of time thinking about and working on different ways to do that. In the tiny houses that, we, that we're building at the moment, actually, the design that we've come up with is to um, have the, the rainwater be caught uh, underneath the living and on in the top of the house so the, the water tank is actually in the ceiling of the tiny house it basically also stores the gravity advantage of the water so that you don't need any pumps or electricity or anything to get your water out of your tank into your house because it just basically gravity feeds down to the taps so that's uh that's where we're at that moment <laughs> with that and then uh but we also cover storing the rainwater in the landscapes so um increasing the carbon content of the soil so that it absorbs the water better and basically anything to do with rainwater harvesting. So both on the technical kind of uh, mechanical uh, level for housing and for drinking as well as for uh, in the soil and uh, stopping it running off with all your topsoil and so more from a permaculture kind of perspective. Fantastic. So can you let us know what you guys do to make your soil absorb more carbon. Compost. Compost everything. So we have one particular method of composting that we really like a lot, which is hot composting. We use compost toilets, so we also um, uh, have humanure going into our compost. So we want to make sure that we don't have any pathogens and stuff going out to the landscape. And the hot compost is just amazing. We're sterilizing everything that goes through your composting system. So it's a little more labor intensive, but you get a great result in a very short time. So we kind of see it as a little fertility ritual, if you like, you know, to really keep all the organic matter that comes in, in through our site, basically stays on our site. So there's nothing going out to the all the time collecting. So our soil is all, all the time getting better. So hot composting, so that is what basically kills off the pathogens in the soil? Yeah. If okay. You, if you maintain uh, like a 50 degree, uh, uh, I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, I'm sorry, <laughs> but Celsius temperature, then um, you kill off the, the uh, for I think it's a very short time actually. It's only uh, a few minutes then. But the thing is it has to be all of the compost at some time or other has to reach that temperature which is why every other day we'll turn the entire pile of compost to also oxygenated to check the humidity levels and to kind of maintain the balance between the carbon and the nitrogen components in there. So we're all the time kind of tweaking it and keeping an eye on it. It's quite, like I say, it's quite labor intensive, but it's worth it for us. We actually interviewed an ex-EPA scientist, Dr. David Lewis, and I highly suggest you <laughs> tune in, everyone tune in to that episode because it was really good. And he studied biosolids, so sewage. Um, he basically said, what we're doing right now with collecting and processing sewage, we're creating a major issue because we're not doing it in a way that is healthful. We're doing it in a way that's harmful by 
basically pushing out more exposure to viruses, pathogens, fungi. You know, he expects to see people become more sick because of the way we're dealing with our sewage. Now, in your opinion... This is not only human sewage either. I mean, this is also from agriculture. Animal. It's a major yeah. problem. Absolutely. You, you are absolutely right. And I just want to know, in your opinion, someone who has experience in composting, u- utilizing humanure, and I'm sure animals as well, is there a way where we all can kind of change what we're doing with our sewage to make it so we use it on our soil and basically make our soil more of a, of a sponge, of a carbon-absorbing sponge to really help what's going on and mitigate you know, the whole ozone greenhouse gas effect. Well, I mean, the challenge is really in the urban setting, right? Like where we are out in the country, obviously the answer is composting toilets. And even if you take sort of a hands-off long kind of process where you, where you basically just add sawdust and pile it up and then just use it on your trees and stuff three years down the line. So much lower labor, actually like nearly no labor involved. This is like an easy option for people that have the space to, to do this. But if you're in a flat <laughs> on the fourth, uh, fourth floor somewhere, it, it starts to get tricky, right? I think that's really where the challenge is to come up with a solution that works in the urban setting. And I think that really needs to come from a sort of the, the, the demand for it, I guess, needs to come from the people. But it needs to be organized, you know, like from a from municipal kind of level, I think. I envision like there actually being like a uh, compost toilet collection service, you know. And there's a great book actually called The Humanure Handbook, which I really suggest to anyone. It's actually very, very funnily written as well with humor. So, but also very well scientifically backed. So, um, and it talks about, he, he talks about this kind of vision as well. You know what? You were the second person to recommend that book. So I'm, I'm really going to go out and buy that book. And you know what? Don't it's be really surprised. the Bible of Echo Toilets. <laughs> I know. Don't be surprised to see that author on our show next. <laughs> That'd be great. That would be that. great. Dr. Lewis was talking about all the toxic things that go down the toilet, all the uh, pesticides yeah. and perfumes and um, dental procedures and blood and you know a lot of stuff that you know these people obviously are not going to be putting down the toilet and i believe that uh, composting the microbial activity is a far superior treatment than what the sewage treatment plants are doing and this is the way of the future this is how to break down these toxins and make these materials natural again yeah absolutely right yeah there's i think there's a chapter in the book that um covers like what actually breaks down in these composts and it's it's amazing it like petrol oil all sorts of things that you think would be a problem in your soil forever actually break down significantly in the, in just this 18 day composting period it's uh, it's really eye-opening yeah i hate to go all doom and gloom but he said if we don't figure something out soon <laughs> we're headed for um a major health disaster for the population yeah if we continue our current method of human waste treatment. Um, so, you know. A, a lot of it is, is this kind of disjointedness, right? Like, I mean, if you know that what, you go, what goes down your toilet ends up in your garden, you're going to be a little, little more careful about what you throw down there, you know? But it, when it just goes away for someone else to deal with, I think that's actually where the major problem is, you know, as it is with everything. You know, like the food comes from somewhere we don't know where, and then the waste goes to somewhere we don't know where, you know? So 
with us not being confronted with the animals that we're eating, how they're being kept and what's happening with their manure and, and to the, the waste that we create just disappearing magically for us to create more, you know, that's what's really playing into the hands of this. You need a lot of time also to think about these things, you know, if you're just surviving, you, you don't stop to think where, you, where your food's coming from or where, where your waste is going. Do you reclaim the methane for heating and uh, cooking purposes? Uh, well, the thing is with a hot compost that you create very little methane, which is part of the ecological attraction of the, of the method. It's basically based on aerobic decomposition. So you're not creating the amounts of methane that you do in a septic tank. Anaerobic, sorry, it's an aerobic system, the, the hot compost. So it uses oxygen. We were wondering, when you collect the rainwater, what does your filtration system look like? There's several ways of, and we're actually still working on finding the, the happy balance between all the different ideas and systems out there. But uh, some of the uh, methods that we use is a, a first flush filter. So this is where you have kind of, you catch the first runoff off the roof in a big downpour, which is usually like the, the dust and the bird poop on the roof and that kind of stuff. And you kind of separate that, separate uh, so it fills up kind of a first flush uh, tank off to the side and then when, when that's full, then you start to actually collect the rainwater and use this other first flush water for, for your garden or somewhere where it's not going to affect the, the rest of your storage. That's uh, kind of the primary filter. Then there's also like a, 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 just a leaf grate on the, on the downpipes of the houses, which filter out any solid debris. And then when we use the water for drinking, then we use a uh, active carbon filtration system. We have this idea to use local potters to make these clay filters that slowly seep the water through the clay and try and get the microns down to a level where the bacteria can't pass through them. But it's quite tricky to kind of get that right. The, the pores of the, the pottery are the the right size that they'll let through the water, but not the um, bacteria. What would you say is like the hardest thing to build in, in your entire workshop? We really aim to make things as simple as possible. We're really trying to make this like a, an insightful kind of experience rather than uh, dazzle people with our knowledge of complicated things. You know, I think like our, our real aim with these workshops is to make this to open these doors to people so that they go, ah, okay, I can do that. That's really where we're going with it. So I would say the thing that people struggle with the most is probably the solar electricity because there's a lot of equations and new terms and stuff that people aren't familiar with. The other things are, are more logical. They're more sort of basic physics kind of things with gravity and heat rising and stuff. It's a little bit easier to grasp, whereas uh, electricity with with it being invisible and hard to just kind of envision if you if you haven't spent any any time on that kind of stuff that can um, be a bit much for people really <laughs> to cover all that stuff in one day got it and I was looking at again your site and, and looking at what you guys do and I'm not really familiar what biochar is could you just explain what that is and what it's useful for uh, yeah so biochar is, um, is something that they found, I think, in Peru or uh, where the Incas were living uh, way back when. And they found these kind of areas in the jungle that were um, uh, surprisingly fertile. And they were trying to figure out what was going on. 
uh, and they dug down and they found these kind of stores of uh, very black soil, uh, what they call uh, terra preta, I think. It's like black soil in, in Brazilian, I think, and uh, or Portuguese. And they, um, they analyze this stuff and what it turns out it is, it's just charcoal, basically. So it's charred wood that's been burned with insufficient oxygen. So just the way, same way that you make charcoal for a barbecue. And it's just basically pure carbon. But the thing about wood is that it's, if you look at it under a microscope, it's like a, uh, it's like a muscle or like, a, like a, an organic thing. So there's lots of little tiny microscopic tubes all together, but made out of carbon. So the, the way that it works in the soil is that it's basically like a substrate for the microbes to live in. So it's like a, a microbe hotel, if you like, because of the size of these tubes, the surface area of a very small piece of this carbon actually is humongous. I, I think it's something like a square centimeter of it. It has a football field of surface area inside of it if you rolled it all out, you know, like it's just crazy because it's all these little tubes together. So you have the surface of each tube like rolled into this little cube, if you understand, if I'm not explaining that very clearly maybe but um so it's all about surface area and also it's uh, it acts as a sponge because of the size of these little tubes that kind of absorbs water so it regulates the humidity of the soil as well and then makes this water available to the microbes who then sort of hold the nutrients and move that around and stuff so it's and the thing is it lasts forever in the soil it's not the kind of carbon that you add in your compost which is like the the leafy brown material that you add to your compost which is also carbon, but this, this is not the kind of carbon that gets consumed by the microbes. It's just a, a substrate. And the cool thing is, because it stays in the soil forever, if you make this stuff, you're drawing down carbon, which is potentially CO2 and causing greenhouse effects in the atmosphere, and putting it in the soil to stay in the soil. So it's a, a way of sequestering carbon as well. Very unique. Yeah, I've heard of Terra Prieta and I heard it was like this, this man-made, illustrious soil that they used in the Amazon. And I didn't know that it was primarily based from biochar, from carbon. So thank you for, for educating us on that. <laughs> the, the only thing is that you, ha you need to actually farm the microbes into this substrate as well. So just the substrate by itself is inert. It's just a substrate. It's, uh, it's like gravel, you know? So you, it needs to be inoculated with the microbes for it to really work. Did you say that you can actually make your own carbon in your soil? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So biochar is basically wood that's burned. There are a few different ways of doing it. Traditionally, they used to sort of mound the wood up and cover it in a, in like with a layer of dirt. And they make little holes in the dirt. And, and light it and then they'd play with the amount of oxygen to just let the fire smolder enough to not actually catch fire but just to sort of gasify all the all, all the um, wood gas out of the out of the wood and then they would sort of kind of put it out and you've just got this pile of carbon wow fantastic that reminds me i watched a uh, show with gordon ramsay and he went to finland and they had like they mean actually like a stove in that manner where they had put the wood under, put like a hole, put the wood under, lit it on fire, covered the hole. And so it's pretty interesting. There's also ways of doing it with like recycled barrels or, or uh, like boilers, this kind of thing. So basically what you want to do is cook the wood without letting oxygen get to it because then the carbon will also burn up and make CO2 and disappear, you know? So does this mean we can improve the quality of our own soil by doing this? 
yeah 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 that's really interesting definitely yeah i really wish we implemented all these things that people know <laughs> well again it's a it's a labor intensive thing i haven't actually got around to like having a, a, a consistent sort of production of this stuff uh, at home yet because it is quite labor intensive and, and you burn a lot of wood to make soil you know so the wood needs to come from somewhere, needs to be dry. But potentially, uh, there's a really cool thing that I'm keen to sort of experiment with, which is one of the best ways to inoculate this stuff is with urine. So it's actually potentially like flush material for the compost toilets as well, which would kind of add it straight into the compost and into your soil and kind of feed two birds with one plate. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if you could modify a rocket stove to turn it into a charcoal producer yeah i think there's someone on mallorca who has done that yeah yeah because i mean that, that would be a way to create the heat more efficiently you always burn some of the wood to create the heat to make the charcoal out of the rest of the wood one of the most simple ways to do it is to actually have like a, a contiki which is like a funnel shaped burn pit basically because of the way that the that the heat rises above this cone it stops the oxygen getting into the fire or most of the oxygen getting into the fire and then it's just a matter of kind of feeding the fire in a, in a really consistent and even way so that you continue to have this kind of heat shield above the fire that stops the oxygen getting into it but you always lose a lot of wood I, i'm not sure what the ratio is but um you you burn a lot of wood to to create this heat to make biochar out of the rest of the wood and obviously like the challenge is to use as little wood as possible and then to capture the heat and use that for some other kind of process as well so there's a lot of room for improvement there you know like uh, and for innovation and there are some really cool projects also. I think there's, a, there's a, um, a documentary called The Power Plant about a guy who basically worked with this system. Yeah, where, um, you know, if you look at current energy technology, it seems like we're, we're looking more into hydrogen power. And I almost wonder, like, what if we did things differently? What if we built, you know, rocket stoves <laughs> in yeah, our yeah, home, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think this power plant guy, he actually made, I think the way it worked was he used a, a biochar kiln to generate electricity and also heat like some water that he was growing algae in. And then he was using the biochar and the algae together to make compost. So like the, it was basically like um, lighting like a hundred houses and creating compost out of, I think it was the offcuts from a timber yard next to him or something like that. Pretty cool idea. Oh, that's exciting. Thank you for recommending all these wonderful things. I am definitely going to check that out for sure. And so when I'll have these ideas in my mind when I'm ready to build my little off-grid community. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But since we're on the topic of building a rocket stove, can you just take us through the step-by-step -step and how to do that? Wow. Uh, <laughs> um, in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, in a nutshell, right. It's quite a tricky thing to maybe visualize, but um, the basic idea of the rocket stove is to use the force of the rising heat from a fire to draw extra oxygen through that fire and to really maximize that effect. One of the ways that's done is by rather than releasing the energy that's, that's um, created by the, by the initial fire of you lighting the wood, is um, to contain that energy in an insulated chimney. So that the fire is kind of lit underneath an insulated chimney so that rather than the energy going straight to heating the heater or the stove and the, and the room and being lost from the fire, that energy is kept together with the wood gases that are coming out of the, 
out of the wood as well so that it's available to light the wood gases as well because in many fires basically what smoke is if you can see smoke from a fire that's unburned wood gas which contains energy if you can light it if you can contain enough energy uh, get enough energy into it to light it it will light and create more energy but oftentimes it just escapes unburnt and pollutes the atmosphere so you've basically wasted fuel and you've polluted the atmosphere that's one of the main things how rocket stoves create more efficiency and then because this rising heat creates so much draft through the uh, through the fire what happens eventually there's a there's a few more details to the stove but i'll try and keep it simple what happens is that the smoke exits the stove with pressure. So where in a normal fire, you really need to go straight up with the, with the chimney. Otherwise, the smoke won't go out. It won't draw the fire. This rocket stove actually pushes the smoke out of the stove, which uh, enables you to push the smoke horizontally through a bench. Or we even push it down into the floors of, the, of our tiny houses. So we have the smoke travel horizontally in the floor of the house heating like a, we use like a, a multiple layers of tiles, just recycled old tiles to make a floor above this chamber where the smoke travels that captures all this energy from the smoke before the smoke goes outside. So the, the smoke travels horizontally either in a bench or in the floor and then gives all its heat off to this mass, so like a heavy, a heavy thing, whether it's like a concrete bench or a, or a thick tile floor. And then it exits the house at room temperature, more or less. So I think we, we aim for 40 degrees. So uh, where normally your smoke is exiting the house as fast as possible with half of it unburnt at, uh, you know, like 200 degrees or something and heating the atmosphere and polluting the atmosphere, this stuff is being burned completely so that the smoke is no longer smoke. It's just water vapor and carbon dioxide. And all the energy is in your house instead of out your chimney. So you can create sort of an efficiency multiplier of, of four. So you, you burn one quarter of the wood to create the same amount of heat in your house. Wow. And so you're moving that smoke through like a protected tubing through the floor or is that smoke directly interacting with the floor, the materials of the floor? So we create uh, a tube, as it were, from the tiles. So we, so we build a tube. But it's also possible to use a metal tube and then cover it in concrete. Great, yeah, because I was just thinking, I wonder if there was some kind of microbial impact or change by just releasing that under the floorboards and the wood interacting with it. I don't know, I'm just thinking of yeah, yeah. chemistry experiments yeah. in my brain. But basically what it is is just a wooden box in the floor like sunk down into the floor which is lined with tiles and then also topped with a, a, a multiple layers of tiles because most of the heat is in the top of the chamber and we want this layer of tiles to absorb that heat they're all like tiles really that are in contact with the smoke so there's no no chance of humidity kind of gathering there or anything i want to switch gears here and i want to talk about your nutrition and permaculture efforts can you just walk us through what you do um, when you teach your, your students, I should say, on building you know, their own permaculture farm, you know, how much land does one need, et cetera? Food is a really important element of sustainability. And it's also the one that's, that's closest to our reach. You know, like we can change what we eat today, regardless of whether we live in a city or, 
or in uh, six acres of countryside or whatever it is, you know. So we cover food in a in a major way. One of the one of the days is is completely on food and nutrition in the sustainable living course, and it's also a very sensitive topic, right? Like uh, many people, I mean, it's it's rife with tradition, and it's all about eating together and all this kind of thing. So it's a very sensitive topic also to cover. So actually, uh, my partner Ava does the cooking for all our workshops. So, um, and she's become more and more passionate over the years about uh, the topic and teaches the, the day on the, on the food as well. And there's just so much to it, you know, like from animal welfare to packaging to local to seasonal to just healthy eating, you know. Uh, and we try and cover as much of that as we can on, in, in the one day. On top of just feeding people well for the two weeks, you know, which is uh, which is actually where we sneak in most of the information because, you know, it's like, oh, this is nice. What's this? And then that comes a recipe. And one of the basic things that really gets me is things like almond milk, for instance. You know, like we on the islands where we live on Mallorca and Marita, there's loads of almond plantations, but people still buy packaged almond milk, which contains like a liter of water and three almonds. You know. So <laughs> that kind of thing is like people just that you know just to open people's minds to like what's actually in the packet and you know like why does it need to be in a in the packet? Yeah, I definitely agree. And when you choose to live in a more sustainable way, you know people have to understand there is a lot more effort to it. You can't simply just go into your your permaculture store pick out your packaged, you know, lentil pasta and <laughs> you're on your way, you know, yeah. you, you have to be immersed into the entire process. But you know what? It's such a fulfilling thing to do. I mean, I've had this experience on Oahu where they had a community farm. We all came together. We all, you know, pruned, we all harvested, we all planted and then we all cook together there's just something so beautiful and magical about that entire experience that you completely miss when you just go to a store pick up a package go home throw it in a pot of water and serve it on, on your table you know what i mean yeah yeah totally and i think i think the biggest challenge that we have though is is when we reach that kind of point that happy point you know is how do we how do we still relate to the people that, that are not doing it and how do we how do we kind of entice them across the bridge and remind ourselves that we used to be on the other side you know and how how do we used to think and what got us across the bridge i think that that's really a a major challenge for us to to kind of i don't know to to make this stuff available for people without kind of being like some kind of uh, freaky you know vegan trapper tiny house off-grid <laughs> hermit or something like that you know like you want to encourage people to take the small steps that that start this journey you know and give them the tools that they need along the way i think that's a that's a really big challenge and uh, i don't know we're working on that you know that brings to mind do you have any programs for children because i feel like starting them young and and planting that seed and and showing them a different way of life i really feel like would make a big impact yeah 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 no, I totally agree with you. And we don't we don't work with children as such yet, but uh, we definitely do focus on there's like a, a group called youth in permaculture that we work with a lot. And anyway, I'm just noticing that 
there are young people now that uh, you know that have the awareness that took me 40 years to gather at the age of 20 you know so so there's definitely some amazing young people out there that um that have a lot to offer and and huge potential in your mind and can you estimate the total cost of building your own like if if one family wanted to come and learn how to build their own off-grid living quarters how much would that cost the basic home is very cheap like material wise you know we use 200 pallets which you can find for free if you have the time but it'll take a lot of time <laughs> we buy them pay like 10 euros each or something and that's probably about half of them the major materials that we that we spend so uh, i think our materials budget for just the basic home are around four or five thousand euros yeah, it's just basically the pellets and some insulation, screws. And we try and recycle as much as we can, windows and all this kind of thing. So there's, there's a huge sort of variance on depending on what we find as well. And so the more time you have, the cheaper you can make it. It's all about putting it together in a clever way and making sure that I use my background in building and the knowledge that I picked up building houses in New Zealand and everything to make sure that these tinies that we build have the proper ventilation and insulation and um, moisture barriers and stuff within the walls so that they, the walls ventilate. And we're building a small home, but it has to be super comfortable. So, and they are, you know, it's just, um, it's basically concentrating the effort that, that uh, you put into a huge house into a small space and making sure that all the nice, the way I started thinking about this stuff is like, where do you actually spend your time in the house, you know? And then cut out all the spaces in between and you end up with a tiny. <laughs> I like that. You know, I think we're, we're heading on this movement of more, you know, minimalism. It, it just, it feels energetically to me, that's where we're heading. I mean, there's still a lot of people that, you know, live their normal lives. But I think maybe amongst my generation, I'm starting to see more people heading towards like a more minimalistic sort of way. But also the people who are hypersensitive, like Keely, Eric and I, they actually are forced into this life. They don't have a choice because contamination and everything is such an issue. And so we often see a lot of people being mobile or, or being more outdoors and being in more pristine places in order to, to find healing. And I feel like where you guys are building these off-grid tiny living communities, like these are pristine places. These are out of the cities. So Thank you again for joining us and we really appreciate your time. Was there anything else that you'd like to tell our audience? Where can we find you? How can they contact you? We're the green echo on pretty much all the platforms, social media and uh, our website, of course, for all the details on the, on the courses and everything. Yeah. If this is the kind of thing that interests people and they're going to be around France or Mallorca anytime soon, then we'd love to see them at one of our workshops. And otherwise on YouTube, we're really working on filling out the, our repertoire there so that people can get as much as they can from where they are. So thank you. Thank you guys for your time. Well, listeners, that was a wonderful conversation again with Doris from Green Gorillas. They are building tiny living communities, which are very, very exciting. Um, and again, we are always out of the box thinkers here, trying to provide you solutions to current situations. You know, a lot of you, you are hypersensitive, you cannot tolerate buildings, homes. So maybe think about doing something off grid. Maybe think about a tiny home. 
definitely is feasible and is cost effective for sure. So please like, share, comment on our content. Also subscribe to our podcast channels. Please support us on GoFundMe and Patreon. And thank you again for joining us. We'll see you next time.